22 years old when I came to prison. I was 30 years old when I went to prison. I was at the age of 19. I had just turned 19. Hi, I'm Chris, and I help life-sentenced men transition from institutionalized prison life back into society. Every one of our men has already served 25 to 45 years in prison. I serve on the board of the Corrections Transition Program at Everglades Correctional Institution in Miami, Florida. I teach these men life skills and how to speak, listen, and think. So when they get paroled, they become assets of their communities rather than liabilities of the state. Welcome to Men Going Home. I'm Chris Wolf, and we've got another great show for you today because we are the only show that brings you access to a segment of society very few people know anything about. Men who have spent more than 30, 35, and even 40 years in prison. We'll talk to them about their crimes, their life in prison, and what their transition back into the free world was like after all those years. However, before we introduce today's special guest, please welcome my good friend and co-host of this show, Andy Korge. Andy, welcome. Well, thanks, Chris. It's going to be a great show today with Edward. I'm looking forward to hearing his story. And uh, boy, I was blown away by that last interview we did with, with uh, Renee Griggs, Renee Griggs, former uh, detective, city of Davie, the arresting officer and eyewitness in a murder with Barry Stevens, who we had here on an interview here at Men Going Home. The chances of that happening uh, must be tremendous, uh, tremendously rare. Because yeah. here we did an interview a few months ago. She was the arresting officer who rolled up on the crime in her patrol car 33 years ago, and she sees the interview and reaches out to us. Fascinating. It was fascinating. It started with that email that she sent to us uh, that really piqued our attention. And then, boy, that show talking, she talked about racism and the— Davy Police mm -hmm. Department. She talked about maybe committing a murder herself and, and being urged to do so. Right. And I urge anyone that's that's that hasn't seen that program yet to check it out on YouTube. Go to the podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcast, anywhere you get your podcast entertainment. Outstanding interview and well worth the time to look at that. Yes. Yes. Let's get this show on the road, Andy, and introduce today's special guest. Edward Dewitt was sentenced to life in prison in 1984 and survived over 35 years in Florida's most violent prisons after he was convicted of first-degree murder. He escaped in 1985 for one week and was sentenced to an additional 15 years for attempting to rob a taxi driver when he was on the run. Edward is here today to tell his true story of crime, prison, and transition back to society. Please welcome today's guest, Edward Dewitt. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. You had quite a ride to get here from Jacksonville, I believe, correct? Yes, sir, I did. Not very much sleep in 31 hours, but hey. We yeah. appreciate you being Thank here. Thank you yes, for being sir. here. Thank and you then, for and then you me. and I will be at Everglades Correctional Institution tonight, correct? Yes, sir. Got to go see my brothers. That's part of your parole agreement is to come back and speak to the men about your challenges, correct? Yes, sir. It's part of our what they call their special conditions. Uh, it's not like a mandatory you have to on this day because they understand we're all over the state. We can only travel when we can. It's just expected that I guess the conditions written that when you're able to, you are expected to participate in the program for like the banquets, the alumni night, COVID, you know, 
put a you know kind of a back burner on a whole lot of stuff. It's the first time I've had a chance to come down in over a year, and uh, right. now that I knew we could come back in, I I tried to make arrangements as fast as I could to come down. You know, I I, I say you spent over thirty five years in prison. You actually spent thirty five years, two months, and four days. Correct? Yes, sir. And how long have you been out of prison now? Uh, this past the eighteenth just passed. This month was two years and seven months. And at the age of 25 or 26, was that's when you had your four convictions. It was a first-degree murder, it was a strong-arm robbery, armed robbery, and then an escape, correct? Uh, it's, my original charge actually took place uh, in 1983, as did the murder charge. The other subsequent charges come about, again, like you Later. said, after I was already in prison and had went to outside right. court on uh, the original charges. Then that other charge happened in Tallahassee with the cab driver, which was 85. As I prepared for your interview, what was interesting to me is that you, you had a very normal childhood. You moved back and forth between Georgia and Alabama throughout your, your teens. Yes, sir. You had wonderful, supportive parents. You have two brothers. You knew at an early age you wanted to be a maritime archaeologist. Yes, sir. And you even had a guidance counselor who had lined up uh, basically a guaranteed admission to the premier maritime architectural institute in the country and full scholarship waived. But something went wrong in your life after the summer of 10th grade. What, what happened in your life? Uh, we had moved. At that time, I had never... <clears throat> To Mobile, Alabama. Yes, sir. Uh, well, no, I was living in Mobile, actually living in a place called Grand Bay. But we had moved, and although I'm going to the same school, it was a different neighborhood. And when we moved in, actually we moved in there on my 17th birthday. And this was the summer after 10th grade. Uh, I was an honor roll student, had everything going for me. As you said, I had been, I would call it a proffer contingent upon me doing my part right. of a full-ride scholarship to uh, take maritime archaeology at Scripps Marine Institute in California. And uh, then we moved that summer, or the latter part of the summer. It was on my birthday. And then suddenly, all my peers, I would say plus minus two or three years right. in the new neighborhood, they all either drank, you know, alcohol, got high on drugs, or both. And at that point in your life, you never drank and you never, never did once. a drug? Never. A sip of beer here and there. But, I mean, in my entire lifetime, I had not consumed uh, a, a pint, probably, of beer and never any kind of drugs. And you seemed to take to alcohol and drugs like a fish takes to water, correct? I literally did. Uh, it wasn't my thing. There was no peer pressure, literally no peer pressure. There was no, if you want to hang out with us, you got, that never happened. No. You know, I would be, I would be a liar if I blamed it on it. My, I'm responsible for my downfall. I tried it because I want, I wanted to fit in. And I you, and you like liked it once you tried it? Uh, that's not even a strong enough word. It took control of me. I went from never having taken a hit on a joint to crushing white barrel LSD and snorting it five weeks after I first started getting high. Wow. I went all in badly. Wow. It was push the envelope. What else? What else is there to try? It's only by the grace of God that that's all I can attribute it to. I never used, people would consider LSD a hardcore drug, but Correct. it's not physically dependent. 
physically dependent hardcore drugs, heroin, opium, uh, crystal meth, shooting cocaine, stuff like that. I never did any of that. And crack wasn't even around back then, thank God, because I probably would have been in on that too. So your junior year started, the summer's over, you go to your your junior year in high school, and you had always been a very good student, but now you started skipping class and you actually didn't go to many classes that year except for maybe one class, and you ended up quitting school. I had one class, my history class, uh, African-American teacher named Inez Green, I will never forget her. If all my teachers would have been how she was, uh, I might have a PhD today. Uh, she made learning a joy. She was a natural. I skip school all day long and show up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon for her class and then leave campus. I never missed one of her classes ever. And she tried to reach you and, and get a hold of you, but you, you, you were unreachable Constantly. at that point, correct? Const- I was unreachable because... I have a firm belief, no matter how bad it is, if a person doesn't want to change, you can't change them. So you, well, you, but you, you, you had a family, right? Parents, the loving parents. What was going on with them during this period when you were not in school and and doing they drugs? They had no and clue. I was a consummate chameleon. They had no clue. So you actually quit and they school. W- they weren't by far. You know, their head in the sand, stupid people. No, no, no. My parents were very savvy. The signs were never there because I knew what they were, and I avoided giving those signs. They never saw me high. I never come around them when I'd been drinking. None of that. That school I went to, if you didn't show up, you didn't show up. They didn't notify your parents you weren't in school back then, stuff like that. Right. So at the end of the junior year, you knew you had pretty much failed the whole junior year, and you, so you never came back as a senior. Your parents were absolutely shocked. They, they, they didn't suspect a thing, correct? No, sure they didn't. When I told them that uh, I failed the 11th grade with an A minus average, they were just like, they just looking at me. I mean, that look on their face was like, they knew I was serious, but they, the other part of them's in denial. They can't be serious. Disbelief. And right. my mother said, honey, if this is a joke, this is not very funny. And you were I serious? Said, it's not a joke. I said, that's my report card. I failed the 11th grade. She said, the lowest grade you've got on here is a B. One B. But you never went to class. I said, Mom, I got three times as many unexcused absences right. as you can have. I said, I didn't just skip school. I occasionally skipped skipping school and showed up, except for once a day, I went to my history class. So you made the decision, you love maritime stuff, and you made the decision to join the U.S. Coast Guard, and your parents supported that. Yes, sir. So on your 18th birthday, October 31st of 1977, you joined the U.S. Coast Guard. Yes, sir. Talk about that. Best years of my life uh, would have been a whole lot better if I wouldn't have took my drug habit and drinking habit with me. Again, I was a consummate chameleon. I hid it. I hid it well. Now, my peers that I got high with, they knew, but like the upper echelon people, they were clueless. Until 1982, because that's when the, the U.S. Coast Guard initiated marijuana testing. All military. They started the actual urine screening and stuff like that. So you failed the first test, and what happened? Uh, my executive officer, uh, Lieutenant Commander Adams, he called me into the ship's office and he said, uh, he said, do it, we got a problem. He said, your tests come back ne- uh, positive. He said, I'm going to just have them retest you because, I mean, I know, that's, I know that's wrong. So sometimes they said it can show a false positive. He knew that this couldn't be me. And I told him, I said, XO, I have a 
I have utter respect for you. I would never, ever disrespect you. There's no need to retest me. I failed. I smoked pot. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And it was like the look my parents gave me. He was like he misunderstood me. He said, what? I said, yes, sir, I'm dirty. So then he said, oh, okay, you got a slap on the wrist, but then he said they're going to test you again in 48 yes, days. He said, we have to wait 40 days for your system to clean out, and then we'll be testing you again. This is just a slap on the wrist. This is just kind of a don't do that no more. Next time it's not going to be so easy. And I told him, I said, XO, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm not trying to be sarcastic or disrespectful. Go ahead and process the paperwork for the next one. I'm not going to quit. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. That's so interesting because as much as you loved being in the Coast Guard, you were not willing to give up marijuana for your career in the you, Coast Guard. You love the drugs more. Life, the only way, I, I did a, a very deep moral inventory a long time ago, Chris. For me, it was, life was a Cheech and Chong movie. And everything's going to turn out the way I want it to turn out because I say it's going to turn out that way. This will be okay. Just like the whole time I'm skipping school, I'll make it work in the end some kind of way. There's that part of me that knows you're through. But that drug addicted, I say the drug, I was never even truly a drug addict. It was just an addictive personality that I had. Right. Pushing the envelope. So In for, denial. So I'll make it work out the way I, it'll work out okay because I say it's going to. So 48 days later, you test again. You, you tested positive for marijuana. Yep. They busted you down a rank. They busted Now it strike. affected your, your real career. Yep. And then you tested positive 42 days later again, and they processed you out of the Coast Guard. Yes, sir. The first time they took a stripe, gave me, I believe it was uh, 30 hours extra duty uh, confinement to ship until such time as that extra duty after normal working hours was completed. Then I could go ashore. But they made that one uh, like a suspensory thing. It's for uh, for 90 days. We're going to test you. If you test clean and you don't get in no trouble, 90 days, we'll reinstate, we'll, we'll reinstate you, you know, the stripe. Okay. Then they tested me again. I failed again. And they said, we've had enough. You've shown us you're not going to quit. They processed Does me the out. Coast Guard have a dishonorable discharge? Or? Sure. It's a military, Chris, just like any other. Okay. We come under so the So that's what you got? You got a dishonorable justice. discharge? I got a general discharge okay. under less than honorable conditions. And, but you knew, you, you knew before that last test, if you tested negative, you were out. I knew I was gone. Right. I, I knew. Right. And you, you, you were basically but telling see, him you're wasting me, your time. There's that part of me <clears> that's not wanting to give up the, the marijuana. It'll all work out some kind of way. Right. Just some flighty idea of it'll work out some kind of way. You know, I'll jump off the cliff. Somehow I'll live. I know it's a mile to the bottom. Somehow I'll live. Well, you know, how did that work out? But so, that's just the way, that's what drugs will do to you. So you're processed out of the U.S. Coast Guard. You hang out in Panama City, Florida for a month. Then you move to Georgia. Yes, sir. And you've maintained your party in ways. You're living with a girlfriend. Uh, it was a friend of mine had a house there that I had right. met. And I'm living with him. And then that's where I met my girlfriend, was through him, a uh, young lady that was from Trenton, New Jersey. And we started okay. kind of vibing together and stuff and then started seeing each other regularly. Uh, you were working heating, air conditioning until October of 1983. Now, yes, now here's my question. Was this when, and you get caught later, but somebody talked you into a strong arm robbery in October of 1983? Yes, sir. Talk about that. Uh, when I, the whole time I was in prison, they used to use a, a phrase, he fell for the okey doke 
I fell for the consummate okie doke. Was a guy we partied with. His name was Wayne, and uh, he had told me we needed to get some money up for something. He said, "Man, listen, I know this girl that works up here at this place. It was actually like a pretty size, good size convenience store, but it had a drive-through window in the back where you could drive through. People just drive through and get their beer and stuff." He said. Uh, she makes the uh, bank drop after closing on Friday night. Mm-hmm. I used to work with her. He says, she's a party girl, Ed. She's down with the lick, but we're going to have to break her off. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'll, I'll talk to her. He said, uh, she's done this before, but it's been a long time. It's been like a few years, so nobody would suspect anything. I'm like, well, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, she makes the bank drop. You be dressed, you know, they got a camera out there. Make sure your face is covered and stuff. We'll set it up. Jump out. You don't need a weapon or anything. Do the snatch and grab. Right. She'll play it all for the camera. Help me. I've been robbed. Oh, you know, whatever. Right. You run. I'll be waiting back here. You jump in the car. Hey, everybody's happy. The insurance company. Hey, nobody got hurt. What's the big deal? So you you did the robbery? Oh, yeah. I said, that sounds like a good idea, man. That sounds Because to me, it it was a lark thing. Nobody's going to get hurt. Right. It's not even a real robbery. It's, it's a show. You know. Right. That's how my mind worked. It's not a crime. So the insurance company, they got the money. People give them money all the time. And during this time, you're still fueled by the drugs and all sure. that. Sure. Yeah. So you show up, and you and she shows up, and you rob her, and she puts on a pretty good show. Oh, you, a real good thought, show. Because in thought? my, I'm sorry, in my mind, I was like, okay, you struggled enough, you can let me go now. You know what I mean? You turned the bag loose. But it turned out she knew nothing about the crime, correct? She was clueless. So you were set up. Yeah, and the bad part was my mother knew this woman. Wow. But she found out a few years later when you were actually brought up on charges on this, correct? Because at, uh, at the time of the ar- robbery, you didn't tell your mom. Oh, no, they knew. Oh. They, they, they knew, yeah. At the time that... That happened before my murder charge took place. Correct. But now when the murder charge come about, not long afterward, right. that's when I basically could come clean and told my parents all this foul stuff in my life. Oh, and, okay. Okay, so she yeah. knew. All right. So, and, and you actually, you get caught later on this robbery, but for now, you kind of got away with it. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about Michael Wayne Taylor. He's known as a guy named Zigzag. Who was he? He was a guy that was, I believe he was like a singer in a little local garage band type thing. He would come around partying every now and then. Wasn't really like our close-knit circle of party animal friends that were together almost on a daily basis. Uh, we might see him once, twice a week or something. He'd come around. We'd party together. You know, that's how I knew him. So he was just in your partying crowd? Yeah. Now, you had a friend named Ken? Ken, uh, Ken Bracewell. He lived in uh, Panama City, Florida. I knew him from early childhood, not really early childhood, but teenage years. When I had moved there in Mobile the second time, that's when me and Ken became friends. I said that neighborhood where all my peers, you know, either got high, drank, or whatever, that was one, he was one of them. And he, he kind of become my best buddy right there, you know. All right. Take us through. Now, all of you. All three of you and several women, you guys are partying. You're doing this whole alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, LSD for like five days in a row, no sleep. Zigzag, he's passed out. But Ken takes you in the kitchen and says, hey, th- this guy, you know, Zigzag, 
he wants to rob you and then take these women off to Houston. Yeah, it was, my, excuse me, me and my girlfriend, we had, uh, we're going to that. And the guy zigzagged, Michael Taylor. He had asked me, he said, look, I got, I, and I forget which was which. He said, I have family. Uh, he, he mentioned Lakeland and Houston, family and friends. You know, which was in which location, I don't remember. He said, can I come as far as Panama City with you guys? And Interstate 10 runs right mm -hmm. by it there. And then I can decide which way I want to go from there. Just get a ride that far with you. I asked Donna. She said, I don't, it's right. okay with me. I said, sure, no problem. We get down there. We're going. I'm going to Mobile, but I'm stopping by Panama City so Donna can meet my friend Ken and his girlfriend. Right. And that's when we were all at a, a bar called uh, Miss Piggy's in R Panama City that night. Right. But your friend Ken tells you, hey, look, you know, you don't know this, but this guy zigzag. He wants to right. rob you of $6,000 you had. So your intention was to drop zigzag. He's passed out. So you're going to drop him off at the interstate. And just leave and leave them and get rid right. of them, and you guys are going to go ahead. Yeah. But what happens? On the way up there, Ken had said he needed to take a bathroom break. Right. And, I mean, I forget the exact words. It's been so long. But it was something to the effect of, uh, well, Ken, uh, wait, you got to hold it for a moment. And I'm starting to think, and I'm like, okay, there's somewhere up here I know I can turn off. It's yeah. a swimming hole were uh, called Ebro Spring, where we used to go up there, freshwater swimming spring, whenever I was stationed there in the service in Panama City. And uh, I said, because I can't pull over on the side of the county highway here. We got drugs in the car. We got booze in the car. I got a gun in this car. He's passed out. You're drunk and high. I'm drunk and high. I'm not stopping in some county cop come by. We're going to jail. I said, so just hold it. I get on up there. I turn off on the dirt road. I go down. I pull in. I back around and I turn facing back out, and we get out and we're using the restroom. Right. Zigzag wakes up and comes up out of the back seat. He's real foul language. What the f's going on? He's and he's and wild. he's got a knife. Yeah, not at the moment he doesn't. And I told him, I said, Zigzag, get back in the car. I'm taking you up to Interstate 10, and you can go. I use some pretty colorful language. Right. Because I'm, I'm still kind of seething about this is, I understand, even as high as I was, I felt like a lot of what he was doing and saying was drugs and alcohol. Talking. Well, you guys were all pretty wasted, correct? Five days Real of partying wasted. and no oh, sleep. Yeah. And you knew his intentions at this point. Yeah. Clearly, right? right. And you were just going to drop him off and head your own way, and but he, he ends up pulling out a knife. When I told him about like the third time, I said, get back in the car or you can walk from here. I thought he was getting back in the car. He leaned up in the car. He was like, he wasn't a, like a monster guy, but he was, I think, six, six foot, six one. Oh, okay. Probably 190 pounds. Big guy. And leans up like he's getting in my car. But when he comes back out, he's got a knife in his hand. I said, zigzag. I pull my shirt up. I said, I've got a 38 pistol. Drop the knife. Get back in the car. And all this stuff ensues with... The, and I can even, you know, with a sober state of mind now, look and realize his was had to be drugs and alcohol talking as well, you know. But you, in reality, you really weren't threatened by him because he was so wasted, right? He was leaning on the car to stand up. Right. Chris. I can't... If I tried to say, you know, I felt I feared for my own life or something, that's a lie. I mean, what happened 
was not fundamentally who I am. If I would have been sober, I say with 100% conviction, that would have never happened. But I wasn't. Were you, when you were drunk, typically, did you become violent? No, I didn't. I hadn't, I've never harmed a human being okay. in my life except for that instance. So you tell him to put the knife down. He's inebriated, wasted. What happened? He starts, I mean, that's why I know it was drugs and alcohol. He's talking about, you're a coward. You ain't going to shoot me or nobody else. Put the gun down. Starts like, I say, walking, stumbling towards me, leaning on the car. I reach down. I pull the gun out. I said, zigzag drop that knife and start walking your ride's over and he's getting all loud oh i'll do this and i'll do that you ain't gonna and he's just looking all around (coughs) excuse me and he starts coming towards me and something inside of me how far away was he from you 10 feet 10 feet maybe. okay and then what happened something inside of me snapped chris it was like all of it come to a boil I'm done talking with you. I'm done trying to reason. Right. You wouldn't have been eating. You don't even have shoes on your feet. You wouldn't have been eating. Nothing to party. You'd still be stuck in motion for what for me. And you were talking to people about robbing me and leaving me for dead. I'm done here. And I lifted the gun and I pulled the trigger until it was clicking on an empty chamber. Uh, one of the rounds, I didn't know then, missed him. But five of the bullets hit him. And, and killed obviously him. killed him. Yes. And what What about Donna? Was she shocked? No, she wasn't on the scene. It was just me, him, and Ken. Okay. Just three of you. When we got back to the house, nobody said nothing. What did you, he, he drops down, he's hit five times, he's obviously dead. What did you do with him? We just, Chris, at that time I was... I don't even know how to describe it. I just, God forgive me. That's not where my heart's at now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I felt like I was taking out the trash. And that's wrong. So you just we dragged just grabbed him. him and drug him up in the bushes and left him there. Left him. When was he discovered? Uh, the next day by two small ch- By two children? By two small children. That were camping with their family. Yeah. And then, how did you get caught? A a week later. uh, I think it was a week later. I had left there. Me and Donna went to Mobile. Donna still doesn't know anything. Ken's girlfriend, Jeannie, doesn't know anything. But after we leave, Ken, again... I can only assume that the whole time he's living in fear. Right. We already got rid of the gun. I already got rid of the gun. I don't even have the gun anymore. But he's living in fear like, I know about this. What might Ed do to me? You know, I never threatened him or right. anything like that. And he was like a brother to me. There's no, I, w- I couldn't have hurt a hair on his head. If he told me I just called the police, they're on the way. I might have ran, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't even thought about hurting him. Well, you, he's an accessory at this yeah. point too. And, and you went back to wherever you were, and, and we everybody thought he just he just right. took off for interstate. Right, me and Donna. Right, that that's the story we told the girls. We right. dropped him off. He's on his way wherever. So you and Ken are the only ones who know about this, right? And then Ken, who was the only man that did the manly thing, that did the right thing, he didn't. He had no part in that murder, right? He was just there 
He didn't know anything was going to happen because I didn't know anything was going to happen till it did. And he was guilty of nothing except, I believe in hindsight, being afraid to do the right thing until I wasn't there anymore. So did when he go we, to the police? The day we left, he told Jeannie what had actually happened, talked with her, and contacted the uh, Panama City Police Department, and they put him in touch with, uh, I, I guess, either the Washington County Sheriff's Office or the Chipley Police Department. Right. And then they come and got him, and he did, you know, all the witness statement and everything. And, again, he didn't even do a day in jail, and that's 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 right because he, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do the right no, thing because he was scared because I was still there. That's the bottom line. Are you still line. in contact with Ken? Oh, no, because he was the one that testified against me. The parole commission frowns on that. Oh, okay. You can't, right. You're not allowed to have contact I would, with him. All right. If I seen him, I would shake his hand and take him but, to death yeah, and but ask no, him to forgive yeah, me. Yeah, no, no ill will no. towards him at all. I, I believe because we were close. My mother washed his undershorts. His mother's made right. me breakfast. I believe that there had to have been an element within him feeling like he betrayed my trust as a friend and that it, it eat at him. I... So you were convicted. I'm hoping he can find it in his heart to forgive me for what I did to him. Yeah. I had no, a friend doesn't put, a, uh, someone doesn't put a friend in a position, here's your choices, help me cover up a murder or betray my trust. What kind of friend right. does that? So you were convicted on November 1st of 1984, yes, first degree murder, you sent to Lake Butler Reception Center, they yes. figure out where they're going to send you. And then they actually sent you to Baker Correctional Institution. That was my first institution. Then they sent you to Cross City Correctional. Yes, and sir. then in July of 1985, that old strong arm robbery, the guy, he gets caught. And of course, he does what Andy and I hear all the time to minimize his sentence. He, he tells the police about a strong arm robbery that he knows about. And they send you back. They send you to Georgia. Yes, sir. Talk about that. He conveniently forgot to tell him that, you know, he was part of it. Right. He had right, a, right. some little minor little drug thing or something. Nothing, no major cocaine, but just some minor stuff. And he's like, look, uh, let's make a deal. Yeah. That strong arm robbery that happened, the guy that did that told me all about it. So he, he never so does any jail time. that's how they find out about me. Right. But when the detective... His name was Gene Rayburn from the Cockrell County Sheriff's Department. When he come to talk, it was either that or the Moultrie PD, whichever, but I believe he was Cockrell County Sheriff's Office. When uh, he come to see me, I was in the Washington County Jail at that time awaiting trial on the murder charge. And we were talking, and he said uh, something, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something akin to, Ed, I've been doing this a long time. He said, that guy, he could have wrote a book about what all that stuff you told him. Who tells a, a stranger or even a friend all those details? Right. He said, that guy is so full of, tell us what really happened. I know he was there. He was part of it, wasn't he? I said, yeah, he was. And then I yeah. told him, I said, he was the getaway driver. It was his idea. I run the whole thing down about, you know, look. I'm not trying to make it okay. Uh, I'm not trying to say it was okay to do it. It was still a crime. 
I didn't know I was going to be right. robbing somebody. I thought she was part of the whole thing. It was a setup to defraud right. the store, uh, the insurance company, out of some money. You know. Yeah, so, so did he? He ended up going to, to jail for that, yes, correct? Because the guy told me, uh, uh, Detective Rayburn, he said, uh, "Will you give me a statement on that? Because yeah. that's not part of the plea, of, uh, the, the deal that right. we made him." Because I'm going straight back to Moultrie, and I'm going to have the pleasure of going to see him and putting him in handcuffs and charging him with accessory before and after yeah. the fact. So, Andy, we have another twist, okay? Now, you're 24, 25 years old at this point. Yeah. You're in, in Georgia for a week and a half for this because they've they've sent you up to deal with this strong-arm robbery. Yes, sir. And you and six others escape from this jail that you describe as an Andy Griffith type Mayberry jail. At that time it was. I mean, you're talking about a county jail that has a regular knob, wooden, open door. Goes off, it's 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday night. How did you make it? You made it to Jacksonville, then Tallahassee. How did you get there? We, uh, I was with a guy named Andy Stripling and his girlfriend is the one that come and picked us up. We got to the back of a store and used the phone. And this was probably six o'clock in the morning. We'd been in the woods, moving all around, you know, not leaving no, uh, no signs and stuff like that right there. We knew our way around. He calls her, she comes and picks us up. We go to Albany, Georgia. Right. She goes in and gets a motel room. We, all three of us stay there overnight. The next day we go to Jacksonville. This guy Andy evidently had quite a bit of a, I don't mean like rich, but a substantial amount of cash he could get his hand on, uh, some drugs and a gun that he was going to get in Jacksonville. That's where he was originally from. We go there. We're there and out in one day. And then we go to Tallahassee, Florida. Right. And got a motel there. But, but you're basically now, you have no money. No money. You have no transportation. No Everybody's transportation. on their own. No ID. <clears throat> no nothing. And you decide to rob a taxi driver. Yes, sir. And, um, well, talk about that. I called a taxi. I was thought about it. And I said, I need to get some money. How do I do this? I was a criminal-minded person at the time. I said, well, I'm just going to hang out away from, because, I mean, I knew as the crow flies, we're only 30, 35, 40 miles from Moultrie, Georgia. Right. Our picture is probably all in the Tallahassee Democrat on the news and everything else. So let me just stay out of sight, kind of hang out the edge of the woods here by this little lake. And then this evening, after a good cab driver's done had a day collecting, 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 people be surprised. Sometimes they would have some pretty good money. I said, I'm going to call a cab, and when uh, they come get me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rob them. I'm going to get the money, and at least I got some money in my pocket. Guy shows up. I just give him some fictitious address that I don't even, I, right. I know the street, but I don't even know if that number exists. They didn't have Google and all that back then. So. But, now, but now you take a you take a broken pocket knife and put it behind his ear to make him think it's the back barrel the of a gun. Of head. Yeah, I didn't even open it. it and he just, he fights for his yep. life. We're at a red light, and he spun around, and we start fighting right there, him in the front seat, me in the back. And that's when you said, you know what? I, I killed somebody, okay. It was may, maybe, maybe it was justified. He pulled a knife, but I, I can't hurt this guy. And you, you ran. You took off. Yeah. And turned yourself in at a Texaco gas station. Yep. We were, we were struggling, and I finally kind of got the better of him, and I had my arm around him, and I could have literally just I could have choked the life out of him. And... 
just something internally. You know, it sounds like something that was long and drawn out just passed through my mind in the blink of an eye. What you're in prison for, it's not excusable, but there is some element of understanding. It's not, it's not okay what you did, but this man played, played somewhat of a role in his own death. This man works for a living and you're fixing to hurt or kill right. this man for his money. That's a Rubicon. If you cross that, you can never return from that. And I let him go, grabbed the door, jumped out and ran. That's called guilt, I guess. So First this, time you had experienced that thought in your head during this criminal years? Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that you actually go to a Texaco station. You, they give you a quarter and you tell the, the, the attendant who you are. You call the police department and they send one car over to pick you up. Yes, sir. They put you in the car. He let you smoke a cigarette. And then he put you in the car and he drove you over to a recent robbery of a taxi driver that somebody called in. And you actually identified the victim. Uh, when we had talked some before about this, some of the elements we're discussing, I don't think I actually had mentioned that when we're in the car, I was saying something to the cop, and he said, hold on. Oh. And he grabbed the radio, and he responded on something. And I heard the radio call, and I told him, I said, you can tell him you've got him in custody. It was me. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. And he turned and looked at me. I said, that was the the cab robbery thing guy right, just right. responded to that he goes yeah i said that was me i said i can't do this he said okay and that's when he drove me over and pulled up run the window down the sarge that's on the site is walking the guy over and uh i looked out at him and i said yes sir that's him right there that's the man i tried to rob oh my god and the sarge stops and he looks at the uh deputy in the car with me and he goes some colorful language, real colorful I won't use here. He said, that's the first in my whole career. That's the first time I've ever had the perp identify the victim. Yeah. So you're charged and convicted on additional escape charge, yes, armed robbery, because it wasn't the gun, but they thought you, you made them think it was a I gun. Made him, but that is armed robbery. And you robbery. got 18 additional years running concurrently with your life sentence. Uh, 20 with running concurrently right. with your life sentence. So at this point, you're 25, 26 years old. You've gone from an unbelievable student not that long ago to a young man with a first-degree murder charge, murder charge, armed robbery, strong-arm robbery, and now an escape. Did you ever ask yourself, <clears throat> how did I get here? I don't think that it was really so much as a how did I get here thing. I knew that all along. I believe what it really was was when I told you that uh, in 1996, I had a complete paradigm shift. I was at Cross City. I was doing real good. Yeah. I had it about as good as you can have it in prison. Had a, they have a great hobby craft program there. I love doing hobby craft and stuff, artwork and stuff. We had everything, wood shop. It was awesome. We had that. We had the uh, all kinds of programs, all kinds of vocations. I worked at Pride. I mean, I've literally got it as good as you can have it in prison. And my parents were even come to see me for my birthday. Sixteen of us got called to be tested for cause. I was getting high every day. I had been in prison for some time now, you know, 13 years. 
uh, why am I going to stop, you know, the chain gang wine and stuff and occasionally real street booze, you know, the story on that. But I was like, I didn't even consider not doing it. I'm like, well, I'm here now. Right. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do me. You know, I'm going to enjoy myself best I can. Right. And uh, it was so, uh, I guess, one of them things that it just right time, right place. And it, it was God working in my life, Chris, because I was sitting there going, I got my hobby locker. I'm going to lose right. that. I got my pride job. They'll hire me back. I'm a certified master screen printer, but they got to wait six months before they can hire me. But Yeah, but after you were convicted again on, on robbery and escape, you had to be reprocessed. You went back yeah. to, to, oh, yeah, from, to, to, to the reception center, and then right. you ended up at Union Correctional Institution. Yes, sir. Now, the rock was... was kind of closed down yeah but union is still one of the most violent prisons in the country and that's Could where be. you ended up in your yeah. 20s right how did you survive 35 years of prison i was always a humble guy i'm, I'm a small statured person anyway uh, i was always real humble but there were a few times that uh you know i don't even like to dwell on it, it it's prison there were a few times when I had to make a statement, and a couple of those times I had to get very violent. Well, you I, pulled a knife I, out on a couple of occasions. Yes, sir. And what did, what was your belief on a knife? People, there's two types of people that use a knife. When a guy about four times my size was, I was going to do this and that and the other or else and yada, 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 I reached behind me, I pulled the knife out, and I said, you see that? I said, there's two types of people that will pull a knife on you. Those that pull one because they're scared or think it'll scare you, and those that know how to use it. I said, a whole bunch of my family are caging people. I will gut you like a fish. You I actually, know how to fight you, with you, a knife. You actually, you know, put a, a like a sexual predator on you down by sticking a pencil inside his eye. Correct? That was at Baker Correctional Institution. Did, did that blind him? Yeah, I, it. I stuck two inches of pencil in his left eye. I didn't want to. It was He was a sexual predator. And I knew I had to make a statement. I'm fresh on a mandatory quarter. If I don't make a statement right now, this is going to follow me my whole life sentence. And that's how it works in prison. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. They're not looking for... <clears throat> They're not looking for somebody that'll fight and stand up for themselves. They're looking for easy pickings, right. easy prey. That's what they look for. I'm not going to be that victim. And you, you also at one time, you know, almost out of a Stephen King movie, you had an electrical cord on somebody who was being trying to be sexual with you, and you almost electrocuted them while they were taking a shower. Correct? Yeah. It, <clears throat> that was one instance where it wasn't really sexual thing. It was just he had verbally disrespected me in so many foul ways in front of the entire TV room that I seen people looking at me. Like, and, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, what are you going to do about this? That guy going to talk to you? Because if I let him talk to me like that, some predator knows he can put down on me. Should so I just said, uh, more on this later. And I walked out of the TV room. You, and, you, uh, you spent, you've spent 35 years in prison. Yes, sir. What's the worst thing you've seen? Yeah, what was the most violent thing you saw in all your years of prison? I seen a guy get almost decapitated over a 40-cent pack of peanut butter cookies. Talk about that. It was at Baker Institution. It was my second day there. Uh, this guy, big workout beast, sitting in a chair right up in front of the TV. 
this little bitty white guy comes in there and he stops and he goes, I'm, I'm sorry, man, but weren't those cookies in that chair? And the guy, the statement that he made was, uh, don't know effing white woman's uh, genital white boy. Right. We'll put that together. Save no chair in my TV room. But the guy looked at him and he goes, yeah, okay, man, I don't want no problem. I know you don't want no problem with me, boy. He grabbed the cookies and he went back and he tells his buddy. He said, I knew something was up because I told Chris that that thing about that thousand-yard stare, that's the first time I ever seen it. He's looking at this guy like he's looking at the dirt through him on the second floor. He said, I'm going to get some coffee, dog. You want some? And I seen his friend going, come on, man. He goes, what? You got me bent. You want some coffee? Yeah, man, I'll take some coffee. He leaves. It's about three or four minutes later, a guy that I had kind of become friends with, befriended, sitting next to me, taps me, and I look over at him, and he's motioning me, move, move. And I'm like, what? Move. And he points, and I turn and look behind me. That same little white guy is coming up between everybody through the TV room with a homemade sword. It's a lawnmower blade mounted to the of, of, of about probably 18 inches of bush axe handle. And he snuck up behind the guy and he hit him right in the neck with it. Wow. When that guy slid out of the chair, I was looking. I saw parts of him only a coroner supposed to see. I saw his windpipe drawing closed and open, trying to pull wow. air. I mean, the gash in his neck right there, it was gapped open like that. I'm watching blood spray out of his corroded artery. I looked at that and I was like, my second day really in prison. Second day wow. in prison. And I was like, already trying to get in that prison mode to where you're like you can't show it you can't show it, you can't show fear you can't show fear you can't show it like you got to act like this is just another day at the office otherwise they'll smell it on you what happened what happened you know would guards come running in what, what oh, happened the guard went to beating on the window a lot, a lot of guys jumped up running out of the tv room and i looked and i'm just i said i tried i'm trying to play this off inside i'm shaking like a I'm shaking like a hamster at a disco. I mean, that's the truth. I looked at my buddy and I went, it's the definition of a bad day, buddy. Toto, we're not in Kansas no more. I'm wow. going to my room and enjoy my coffee because they fixing to lock this booger down. Got up calmly like Clint Eastwood, strolled right out of there. Another day at the office, got to my room, shut the door, and I was like, oh, man. Whatever happened to the guy who, who murdered him? He just got another mandatory quarter. He was already doing four life sentences for murders. Wow. When the guy disrespected him, what he didn't know was that same young kid was doing three life sentences from Louisiana. That guy did right. like 12 years at Angola State Penitentiary. In Louisiana. That, that makes anything in Florida look like a daycare center. What was the best prison you were at? Cross City. Why? All the hobby craft. Okay. The, the pride i loved working with pride i'd have did the job for free how about you the worst prison what was the worst prison you were at i would say martin martin correctional i never encountered any violence this was in my latter years there uh toward pretty much almost the end of my sentence i say in my, end of my time in prison but it was real violent there gangs and it was just always locked down not being able to get to the canteen it never visited me i had no problems there the two years i was there but it was one of them it's always something some idiots out there creating problems how would you rate or, or how would you rate everglades correctional institution 
when I left there, I would rate it pretty highly. It's like anything else, Chris. I'm not going to disparage correctional officers. You have some there that they think it's their job to punish you and be ugly to you and just really talk to you foul. The majority, they're there to do a job. Right. They're there to do a job. They're not trying to give you a hard time. I encountered some bad officers while I was there that just talked to you. No matter how polite you are to them, they'll speak back to you like, what are you even doing speaking to me? I encountered some there that would be just like, if it wasn't for the fact I'm in blue and he was in brown, we could have been friends. You, you, you know? mentioned you mentioned the the sword by the gentleman mm-hmm. who committed that murder, he, anus murder. You mentioned you had a knife. Were most people in the prisons you were in were they most of them armed? Quite, not I wouldn't even say most people, but and this is not to disparage someone who's trying to live right and doesn't have a weapon or have access to one. But for a while there, especially in the earlier, they have much more control over the system now than they did back like the Cross City and the Baker time. Back then, it was like far more wide open. There's less of it now. There's still violence, but there's less of it now because they have more control. The control movement and stuff prevents, not totally, but a lot of the stuff. When I was at Cross City, when they cleared count, blow the whistle, yards open, you come and go as you please until next count time. You just can't go to an authorized area. You can't go up and just walk in classification or go into colonel's office. Hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, but you can go on the compound general anywhere you want to go all the way until next count time. You can't do that now. It's controlled movement most places every half hour to and from the dorm. You leave the dorm wherever you're going to, you get there. Drugs and alcohol, easy to get in prison? Absolutely. Absolutely. How does it get in? People sneaking them in. uh, A lot of correction officers. There's correctional officers, but I won't just put it on them. But uh, sometimes it's the correctional officers, uh, I guess, and I'm I'm not judging. It could be the paramedics coming in. An officer might say, well, I won't do dope, but I'll smuggle in tobacco. Right. I smoke. I think they should be able to have it. He'll justify it that way, even though it's against the law. You were you were transferred into the Corrections Transition Program at Everglades on July 3rd of 2013. Yes, you were, sir. You were in the, that's when I met you yes, sir. in 2013. And you were paroled on December 18th of 2018. Yes, sir. What was it like to walk out of prison, almost a free man, uh, after 35 years? In a way, it's easy. It's a convoluted answer, but it's easy to answer because I still feel that way today. It'll never get brand new to me, Chris. I mean, as far as right. that goes, it, that that old feeling will never be brand new then. It's brand new to me right now. When I wake up, right when I, I sit here and look out that window, and I don't see no chain link fence with razor wire on it. I am utterly grateful beyond words. Every day is a fresh start for me. Every single day is like the day I just got out of prison because I refuse to ever take this for granted again. I'll never do that. Being able to just throw peanuts to the squirrels, it's priceless. What, is what, you, what, can I ask a question to you? Is your faith helped you absolutely. get to that place, faith in God? If it was not for God, I wouldn't be here right now. We never even covered this, and I won't go into detail. I took a shortcut to get off the top of a 22-story condominium in Panama City. I was so high, I forgot I was 22 stories up. Literally, it sounds like a joke. I forgot where I was at. Got to get back to the ship. Got duty tomorrow. I'll take the, the quick way. 
the road's right here. Road's right out here. It sounds bizarre, like something out of a Cheech and Chong comedy. I'm serious. I jumped off the AC unit. I'm on the roof. I got the best view in Panama City looking at the ocean. I jumped off the AC unit, walked over to the retainer wall, jumped the retainer. It's about waist high. Put my hand up on it like you would a short fence and jumped right over it. It's 22 stories to the sidewalk. I landed on a pressure washing platform about four feet down. That pressure washing platform is about building's probably 150 feet what are the odds of that being a coincidence but i'll say this now that was some good dope i was smoking and was high on when i hit my knees and grabbed that rail and i looked and i realized what i had just done i wasn't high no more i was like oh my god and that's the drugs for you any sane person says no more edward what, what has been the biggest challenge for you uh, getting out of prison and being on parole? Patience. Patience for what? Success. But you're doing well. You've got a good job now. Yes, sir. It took me two two years and seven months. I wanted it to happen the first day I was out. You're, you're working for a transportation jacks. What's the name of the company? It's, uh, I would prefer to, because, I mean, the company, I'm not sure that, you know. Oh, I thought want you'd want to mention. I mean, they gave you a chance. I mean, well, as far as that goes, yeah, well, I, I will. It was cool trans It's cool transportation jacks. Okay. Yes. In my, Jacksonville? My boss has blessed me and uh, blessed me richly. He gave me an opportunity when many wouldn't. And that's my message to the community at large. We just want a chance. We just want to. I didn't come out with any preconceived notions that anyone owes me anything, Chris. So, so too many people, they lock me up for 30 years, 20 years, whatever. They owe me for that. They don't owe you nothing. They owe me nothing. Nobody owed me anything. All I asked for was the grace and consideration to give me the opportunity to show you I will not let what happened define me. It's not who I am. Let me earn your trust. But Just if you give could me speak, to If you could speak trust. to a bunch of you know teenagers in high school, what advice would you give them on drugs and alcohol and choosing their friends wisely? Just say no sounds so trite. It's the truest words you'll ever hear in your entire life. They will destroy you. You got control. You got this. Seen it, been there. You got it. You're doing okay until you're not. And your life can change from one moment to the next. You're one bad decision away from death row, prison, or, or whatever. Drugs will destroy you. It's not a matter of will they. It's a matter of when. There is no, there's no in-between. I've been smoking pot for five years, snorting coke for 10 years. Okay, you've been doing good. That just means your talk's, clock's ticking on you because when the piper comes calling, you're going to have to pay, and you ain't got that much money in the world. It'll catch up to you. It will catch up to you. They will destroy you. Wow. They give you an entire, they alter your reality. And I don't mean LSD, I'm tripping. I don't mean that. They alter the way you literally think about things. Right. Powerful. Wow. I, I, I wasn't hurting nobody but me. If I'm Okay, if I'm getting high and I'm drinking, I'm not hurting nobody. You know, but this is before the murder when I first started. I'm right. not hurting nobody but me. When it all come to light, I was hurting every single person that cared anything about me. I was hurt. They were hurt. My mother, when she... 
it was hurting her. It's like I was ripping her heart out. Right. You know, where that where did we go wrong? That's the first thing they did was blame themselves. Where did we go wrong? I had the best pair. If there's anything I could wish for my best friend, it would be that if he doesn't already have, that he would have parents like I had. My parents didn't go wrong anywhere. I chose that garbage over the love they had for me. How does the life feel now? God's good all the time. Edward, I had a second chance, and I'll, the only time I'll ever see the inside of a correctional facility or jail is if I go visit trying to reach out and speak to somebody. I live right. I live clean. I'm living the life my parents that I know they're not here anymore, but I'm a very spiritual person. They can see me, and they're proud of the man that I am today. That's all that matters. Amen, to brother. Amen. Edward, you have been a fantastic guest. I know you do you know, come down to East Everglades Correctional on occasion. You're always welcome here to be a guest on this show. And I just want to thank you so much for being here today and, and, and doing what you do for the men at Everglades and uh, in the Corrections Transition Program. Thank you. Chris, Andy, thank Andy, you both. Awesome. Andy, final, final comments? Wow, very powerful. And, and great to see a guy like this straightening out his life the way he has. A victim of drugs and alcohol victim of drugs and alcohol and now he's strained it all out it's very inspiring Ed. very inspiring thank you well that does it for today thank you all so much for watching and listening special thanks to grant miller in south miami christian stenstrom in sweden and john mccarthy in fort myers thank you so much for letting us know you're enjoying the shows and please join us next week for a premiere episode of men going home and all of our shows are available on TrueCrimeMiami.com. And if you like this show, please share it with your friends. And thank you all so much for watching and listening. Thank you.